Before we begin, I'd like to proudly mention our sponsor, Injitsu.com, providing remote at-home training from some of the world's top MMA fighters. These classes are not pre-recorded. These trainers come to you live and coach you for the duration of the class. I've personally taken a few of these classes, and I've never felt so inspired and accomplished in a workout session. They'll leave you both on the floor in exhaustion, but wanting more. There are still slots available for online classes, so head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. I'll see you there. I'm a big fan of MMA sports. It's rough and elegant at the same time. I think my number one fear of stepping into a ring like that would be protecting my teeth. Luckily, the guys over at Impact Dental Designs have created an amazing mouth guard that is state of the art. These mouth guards are currently being used by some of the best MMA fighters, but even better, they can be tailored to any sport. Football, hockey, boxing, soccer, the list is endless. Head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash richardlistens to get 20% off your order and a free customized design for your mouth guard. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Richard Listens Podcast. I'm Richard Olberg, clinical psychologist, and I'm your host for today. Thank you for joining me, and we have our guest who was on Instagram live with us on Friday talking about his specialty, the world of tennis and performance psychology. Thank you again to all my subscribers, for all of you who have been signing up for email lists, signing up on our patreon.com page to support the show, patreon.com slash Richard Listens, Instagram at Richard Listens. Please tweet at me, Instagram, Facebook, Sign up, subscribe, and listen. Please take the time. Send this to friends that you think might like the show. Uh, my guest today, Mr. Josh Berger, is a Division One tennis coach. He's also been doing that for the last two years. He also has been working with performance athletes himself through a company called Tiebreaker. He is willing to talk to us about the world of tennis and how it's impacted through corona and beyond and what it's like to work with tennis athletes on elements of performance and how they're navigating the whole post-corona beyond. He'll help take a look at performance routines that might help tennis players in ways in which they keep themselves focused in the moment and letting go of any holdups, concerns, fears, doubts they have so it doesn't impact their game ongoing. Again, I'm Richard Listens. Hope all of you are staying safe out there, remaining authentic and true to those who love you and figuring out creative ways to stay healthy, both physically and emotionally and mentally. I know how difficult this can be. This is uncharted territory. Please don't fret. Reach out to a professional. There's many resources, including myself, willing to get online, other forms of therapies opening up now, regulation changing that you do not 
not need to be alone and you can figure out creative ways to navigate through this crisis. Without further ado, I'm happy to bring to you Mr. Josh Berger. Thank you for joining us on the show, Josh Berger. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So you are the founder of Tiebreaker Psych, and you're also Division One tennis coach at, is it Sacred Heart University? Yeah, that's correct. Well, first off, uh, thanks for having me, Richard. Really is great to be with you today. So yeah, I over the past two years, I've been the assistant men's and women's tennis coach at Sacred Heart University which is a Division One university in Fairfield, Connecticut, which is actually where I grew up, less than 10 minutes from. And last fall, I started Tiebreaker Psych LLC, which is a sports psychology coaching business where I work with groups and individuals of all different types of ages, levels, sports, on the mental side of the game. It's incredible that you're so close to where you grew up. Did, was tennis a, a first love for you? When did you discover it? Tennis has definitely been something that I've been passionate about for a long time. I actually started with a couple other sports, soccer, baseball, basketball, and though I enjoyed them, something about tennis really drew me in maybe the individual aspect of it and once i started getting more serious about it that sort of became my focus i would say i started taking it more seriously in middle school and started playing tournaments and then throughout uh, high school and college certainly played a lot and have been you know very serious about sport ever since that's incredible so did you i mean was this like a dream job for you to come back home and coach there or how did that end up happening? Yeah, it was actually funny. So I, I moved out west actually closer to, to your neck of the woods uh, after my undergrad and moved to Long Beach where I did my master's in sport and exercise psychology at Cal State Long Beach. And after that, moved up to San Francisco for about six months and I was coaching at a big tennis club there and then decided to move back home to Connecticut to be closer to my family and didn't think I was going to stay in Connecticut. Thought Boston or New York would be my more likely destination, but the position at Sacred Heart opened up right down the road, and, you know, it was a great opportunity to start coaching college tennis to work with a men's and a women's team and a Division One environment. It was a great opportunity. And do you find, I mean, I know the performance psychology background helps with coaching, and it can help, you know, in a variety of ways. Is it a good way to be able to implement sports psychology skills? Or do you find when you're the coach, it's hard to be also the objective observer about what's happening and, and the dynamic with the player and, and to do both hats? Is there is there room for that in the role that you're currently in? You know, how does that play out in the future for you? Definitely a unique role. I don't know too many other people in the sports psychology field that have a similar role necessarily, where they're also working for a team in an assistant coaching role and also doing a lot of mental skills and sports psychology. I think it can be challenging in a certain way where 
players maybe you know maybe they don't always feel comfortable about addressing certain things because they know that I'm part of the decision making process frankly when it comes to lineups and when it comes to making decisions about the team but what I found over the past two years that is that I've had an easier time implementing more mental skills into practice and doing workshops so the sort of what I've tried to do is, you know, have some individual conversation, but really try to implement as many sports psychology concepts in a team environment as possible to sort of eliminate that conflict of interest that could possibly come about in me having to make decisions in that sports psychology. Does your school bring in somebody from the outside? Like, how, how do you uh, keep yourself in your coach role, or would you recommend that your players work with an outside professional or well generally they they just work with me i mean the way it works is that each team sort of does their own thing where they might um, each team might bring somebody in i essentially that's the hat that i wear with the team but uh it really goes on a team by team basis i think certain players might have somebody else that they talk to outside of the team but within the team yeah that they'll talk to me about not really clinical matters, but things that have to do with performance. How can we come up with some strategies that they do in between points? that they can do the night before matches, things that, you know, ways to review their matches, thinking about how we can practice in a better way, how we can enjoy practice more, how the, you know, the team can all operate, you know, in a cohesive way. So that's where I think I can really add value. Yeah, and you mentioned, so a lot of what we do in sports psychology, talking about pairing for the mental game, mid-game, post-game, right? So, you know, what would you say are some ways that uh, tennis players in particular can prepare themselves mentally on those three levels, pre-post, mid-game? Yeah, I think um, when it comes to pre-game, I think visualization is huge. I think if you, you know, this could just be done a few minutes before the game or a few minutes the night before, but really, you know, closing your eyes, really trying to get into the mindset as if you're actually in that moment and try to incorporate as many of the senses as possible of a particular scene. So I think visualization is, is extremely important before or sort of in that pregame type of environment. What have, what have you found to be to be helped working with players of different sports to prepare a sporting environment, particularly a, a stressful one or a high-pressure environment? I've been working with some MMA fighters. Obviously, with MMA or basketball, it's going to be different. I think team sports might have it a little bit different, but MMA as a whole, I'm both in awe of their preparation. I mean, some fighters are sleeping in the ring the night before to habituate themselves to being in this environment to make it feel less stressful, to make it feel like home. Not everyone has that kind of access, but some of the things may, obviously you have shadow work, doing all your moves as if you're fighting against the opponent, maybe using your offhand or having somebody, you know, like a sparring partner who imitates some of the moves of your opponent. Some of it may be, like you said, visualizing 
when you're tired or actually practicing when you're at your most fatigued, right? Because it's not when you're when you're strong probably that your mental lapse starts to happen. A lot of what we've gotten from the skills is also how is your listening? When you're fatigued, are you listening to your corner? We hear it on TV, right? Keep your left up, right? But how is your communication with your partner? So practicing that in the preparation leading up, uh, how well are you listening? How well are you taking in information even when your emotional and physical resources are stressed so that when you get into a fight, it's like you've already been there. That definitely makes sense. Like, uh, I think the communication piece is huge. You know, I like to say that we play how we practice, right? So if a player is getting all upset during practice because they're, they're missing shots, or if I don't feel that I can talk to them, or if their partner in a doubles format can't communicate well with them during practice, then what's going to happen when we're actually in a competition when the pressure is a lot higher? So I think the, the communication piece, um, whether an individual setting or in a, you know, a team setting, is, is huge. I think it's really humbling when an MMA fighter who, you know, we might stereotypically think, you know, especially someone who's, you know, trained to fight to survive, you know, we think of this like animal instinct kind of thing. So, you know, but on the other hand, there has to be this real respect for your opponent. There has to be a real awareness, uh, you know, some of the more developed you know, higher level executive functioning, you know, built in. So having somebody who you communicate with and the trust there and also an awareness about how you are as a communicator and a listener. So what I'll be interested, you know, is like I have a few tennis clients who come to me at, at lower levels or recreational levels and they tell me in their relationship to the coach, you know, maybe they don't want to offend the coach. You know, maybe they're kind of a people pleaser on some level and they don't want to tell the coach that they're not going to use a certain stroke that they've been working to implement or to tell the coach maybe, hey, like too much stimuli, like boundary, right? Because on the fly. So it's too much right now. I got to go through my process from point to point. I'll self-correct. So how do you build that in, right, with a tennis player, especially from a young age, like this ability to kind of tell you what they need? And as a coach, is that is that a hard thing to kind of self-monitor? Yeah, it's interesting. I think as coaches, and I've, you know, I work with uh, university level players, but also junior players or adult players that are more recreational. So I think part of being a good coach is teaching a tennis player to be self-reliant because um, it's actually rare that a coach is going to be on the sideline with them being able to coach them through a match. There are situations, professional tennis as well as college tennis where you you will have a coach on your side but most of the time it's just you like an mma play mma fighter in the ring you know they might have their their team in between rounds that they can go to um but when they're actually out there it's not like you know football where you have 10 guys 
on either side or basketball or soccer or sport like that where you're surrounded by teammates. It's just you out there. You have to be self-reliant. You have to be able to figure out what's going on around you and adapt to the circumstances. So I think, you know, trying to teach athletes to be self-reliant, but also as a coach, um, when you do have that opportunity to be out there with them, um, rather than overcoaching and feeling like you have to say too much, which is certainly something I feel like I went through in the beginning. Sometimes le- learning that less is more, learning to you know say, you know, you got this, trust your strokes, go for it, you know what to do, you've been through it before, rather than really trying to lay out a very, very specific gameplay for them. So just sort of letting them, you know, letting them take control. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest areas of growth in in my uh, hat as a a youth coach, you know, is when you watch, you know, Phil Jackson or, or one of these coaches that says almost nothing, right? Like they just watching and then they call a timeout and they let the players sit down, <laughs> they let them talk, and then they come into the end and say little, if anything. And, and learn that, like, you know, what it was after a win, say little, after a loss, say less. So really learning about the emotions of players, especially if, if you're working with, like, uh, downtown L.A. soccer players here in Los Angeles with their parents. Some of them were professionals at 13 and 15 years of age in their own country. They're going to have a hard ride home. Uh, the pressure's felt, you know, the culture is intense. So really being careful around, you know, the intensity. Whereas when I coach, I tend to be hyperverbal. You know, it's almost like the anxiety extends out through being verbal and doesn't always make an effective communicator was there someone who modeled that for you uh learning how to you know say less or how how did you learn that it were there coaches you had that you were like that way works more (laughs) than than the other yeah no it's a good it's a good question i've i've certainly been around coaches who have been on on both sides of that and i think i myself have been in many ways been on uh both sides of that i think you know you you bring up uh phil jackson and uh through watching the last dance recently and just seeing his his zen like uh personality and i'm gonna ask about your uh corona based uh viewing (laughs) quarantine based viewing so i was was locked in absolutely (laughs) so somebody like him who really has the ability to read the room and really through i i I know he has a lot of mindfulness training himself and is able to sort of just be aware of the situation doesn't feel like he has to insert himself self in every way and you know, always be speaking but can sort of let the players take control to a certain extent and have that autonomy to run things in the way that they best see fit and he can sort of just guide the ship 
Um, from my own experiences, I've had um, one of my coaches growing up, um, Charles is his name. He he sort of had a way of coaching through inspire. So rather than saying that I had to play a certain way, his message that he would just say, you know, repeatedly was be all you can be. So sort of leaving it up to me to decide what that meant exactly, decide, um, you know, how I could best maximize my ability and my talent um, rather than saying you know you have to play super aggressive or you have to be the most player the most uh, consistent player out but hey be all you can be you know make the most of, of what you have through coaching I've, I've certainly been around some coaches um, one in particular who uh, works a lot with the author of The Inner Game of Tennis, which I think is which is a great sports psychology book, which really you know talks about sort of doing less, focusing maybe just on the ball or... For our listeners, just write that book, The Pressfield. Uh, Galloway. Tim Galloway. And, and The Inner Game of Tennis is mental skills for all walks of life. So, it, you know, you don't have to be a tennis player. And if you're interested in getting something off the shelves, uh, really easy to to read and break apart maybe different ways in which you might approach the inner game of, of sport. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a book from the 70s um, that I think is as relevant now as as ever. It, it really helps tennis players, but, you know, helps athletes and I, I would say performers of all kinds get out of their own head by noticing yourself, noticing the way that you talk to yourself and by trying to clear those thoughts so that you can just perform without the distraction of constantly judging. So through working with an individual who had a lot more of that philosophy, he found that, you know, by constantly guiding players and constantly overcoaching them, that that wasn't so effective. So he taught me in a style of really less is more of, you know, let them figure it out for themselves and they're going to learn it a lot better that way. And you just help to guide that process rather than really pressing and sort of saying, this is how, this is how you're going to play. And, you know, let me help you do that. But instead taking a step back and uh, trying to just let them find it themselves. And how do you find that working? You know, the division one level, certainly the most competitive, you know, level of sports at the collegiate level. You know, these are players who've probably, you know, been very dominant coming up through the ranks. Do they buy into, right, the team element of tennis, right? You have rank order, you have to choose uh, doubles teams. I mean, you know, are they able to check their ego at the door? Are they willing to be coached? How do you incorporate that at, at this high level? Yes, yeah, so it's interesting. So tennis is a sport where uh, most players growing up will play tournaments, and it's all about that. It's all about their results, their performance. And then all of a sudden, you know, maybe they've played high school tennis or some of the players um, at a higher level have maybe played for their country or they've played in another team environment. Um, but all of a sudden they're in, they're playing for not just themselves, but they're playing for the university 
on their clothing they're playing for all their teammates i i think i think it can be a, a bit of a transition um for a lot of them i think a, a lot of them really enjoy it because maybe they lost their match but the team won so rather than pouting and being all upset you still have hey maybe i didn't play well today but my teammates you know stepped up and and we got the w so i think a lot of players especially if the team environment is new to them they really do enjoy uh collegiate sport have you found that as well working with individual athletes that maybe transition more into a team role um, in, in different sports? I mean, obviously there are different psychological factors um, in an individual environment compared to a team. Uh, found it difficult getting the buy-in or? I, I guess, have you found any players that have um, maybe been more traditionally individual sports that have that have started maybe competing in a in a second sport that's a team sport or you know started to work with uh teammates around them that you know maybe they're they haven't been used to in the past i'm working with a lot of a mixture of athletes but i'd say that you know when you get a high school athlete or or team even if they're multi-sport athletes they're they're usually at a better stage of willing to be molded. And at least here in Los Angeles, where, you know, things, at least in the basketball realm, are so competitive from a young age that they're getting mental skills and, and a variety of people that are trying to, you know, work on building aspects of uh, team cohesion and role acceptance things like that you know on the other hand if you have been the alpha uh, player if you've always been the one that things are, are focused around it may be difficult to get that buy-in when talent is still what is separating you so sometimes you know it takes when players make that jump to the next level and it's a little bit more equalized talent-wise, where they realize they need to develop mental skills. There's other things that are separating them. You know, maybe they notice somebody or there's some athlete that motivates them. If they want to be great, if they have that. Otherwise, sometimes failure and struggling is what leads them to contact me. So, you know, the beauty of, of kind of sitting with a you know psychologist degree is that sometimes it's not always clear when people come through the door what exactly they're needing and whether it's more emotional or something that's specifically performance-based. So I try and really separate the two, but it can be complicated if what performance means to your identity and what scoring the ball or having statistics means to you. So making certain shifts in your approach of becoming more process-oriented may become really hard at first. You know, people may see that as weakness. It's some degree of removing a mask or a layer of, right, who I am and who I need to be to feel 
good about myself. So, you know, doing some individual work to peel away the layers of the onion is kind of like my method and where I'm aiming through Richard Listen's Crossing the Threshold, the book that'll be coming out this year. And, and through the podcast, what I love doing is peeling back with athletes something, what's behind who you are as an athlete, what motivates you. Uh, and sometimes I'm pretty amazed with how athletes make the transition from, you know, being a basketball player to becoming a writer, from becoming a college football player to becoming a public speaker. And it, it's not always linear. We see it as this long-term linear thing. Oh, that guy was successful in Division One football, and now he's you know, at this level, you know, there were ups and downs based on identity. And a lot of athletes go through this in any in any transition. So I'm ranting on. I think the question which can I can reflect back to you is, right, including this COVID quarantine, is how does an athlete deal with change and transition? How do they deal with a change role? And in this case, right, a major transition, if you have a lost season, um, how can you adjust emotionally? So how at the Division One level and through tennis has this whole quarantine been, been, you know, adjusted to and have players been able to stay focused mentally as well as physically? Definitely been challenging. The way that we handled it was we set up weekly video calls with the players for whoever was interested and they could uh, sign on and we'd address a certain topic. We, at first, we started with handling adversity because, as you said, players had gone through a significant loss and really were, you know, in that grief cycle, were dealing with grief, dealing with loss of, of a season of maybe a piece of their identity. Maybe it was a senior, maybe, you know, some of the seniors uh, will never get the chance to play college sports again. That's uh, very challenging. You know, we, we spoke a lot about dealing with adversity, uh, also thinking about controlling the controllables and not trying not to get too caught up in everything going on around us, but trying to really boil it down into what is important right now and what is within our control. And then if you catch yourself, you know, overwhelmed with the whole situation, trying to bring it back, uh, those core things. So I would say, yeah, trying to really, you know, think about what can be controlled today. You know, how can I have a routine today that can help me get, you know, to, to feel more comfortable with all this uncertainty going on around me, but also to help me to, you know, still achieve the goals that I've set for myself. Despite all this craziness that none of us expected, how can I still perform, frankly? So, you know, it definitely has been challenging, but we've tried to to set up an environment where players can continue, well, at least in the beginning when it when it happened, where players can sort of address these issues and we can have some discussions, but also um, talking about topics like handling adversity and trying to come up with some. It seems like everyone these days is trying new workout systems. Some people go to the gym, others may run, but I've recently discovered a great in-home method that is absolutely amazing. I'm taking in-jitsu classes online where I'm being trained and pushed in real time by top MMA fighters straight from the octagon. 
and jitsu.com provides real-time classes so you can get a top-notch workout from the comfort of your own home. These classes are absolutely going to sell out. So head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class for free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. Protecting your child's teeth is important in any sport. That's why Impact Dental Designs has put so much thought into their state-of-the-art mouth guards, protecting athletes in youth sports, all the way up to advanced MMA fighters and champions. And the best part is you can customize your own design for your own creative and fun mouth guard. So head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash Richard Listens. And if you purchase now, you get a free customized design and 20% off your order. Is everything being done at a distance? I mean, the players on scholarship, do they stay close to the university or do they eventually head home? I mean, how is now heading into summer? Yeah, well, it really shuts down. I mean, even in normal years, it really does shut down during the summer. Players, you know, players do have workouts that they can do. Many of them will play or compete during the summer, but it really, it's on them, you know, what they want to do and how much they want, they want to do ultimately. So it really was, you know, just as the season was wrapping up, I mean, we really stopped in the middle of March and, you know, we were expecting for our regular season to go until the middle to end of April. So it really was that next month where most of the work was done. But now I think, you know, most of them are home and maybe they've gotten together. But for most of them, it's really been, I would say, more of an individual process. There's also, you know, a number of NCAA rules about, you know, continuing during the summer and everything. It was really, you know, that initial shock with everything that was going on and then handling it in that moment and hopefully uh, providing some resources that they could refer to, you know, later on in the process. It must be so challenging as an athlete dealing with uncertainty. Did they did they keep some degrees of uh, Zoom calls or trainings? I mean, you know, dealing with uncertainty is just not, especially in an individual sport, you know, how do you practice that self-reliance at a time like this? Yeah, not, it's certainly not easy. I think, you know, as a coach and as a sports psychology coach, I like to think that we've, we've worked on, you know, talked about uncertainty as, as a reality. We never, you never know if you could face an injury. You never know when somebody, when your doubles partner might not be available. You never know when somebody on the team might have to miss a match. Like there is all sorts of uncertainty that we were prepared for that we had experienced before, but this was obviously on a whole nother level and, you know, not just for us. So I, I really think it's a, a great chance for them to practice these mental skills that, um, that we've talked about in the past. Um, I think this is really a great, a great chance. You know, it's, we like to break things down into is this a challenge or is this a threat? And, you know, tough situations can be seen as a threat. But if you can think in terms of your mindset and viewing it as a challenge, you can hopefully rise to the occasion. So that's that's the way that we present it as, hey, how can you rise to this challenge? How can you view it as a challenge in your mind? Yeah, I, I got to give a, a presentation for Maccabi International and I called it Quarantunity, right? Because, and a lot has been, you know, written historically. I know I kind of started to rack my brain early on when this happened. Where did this happen in history? What can we draw from? What can I look to some resource, some compass, somewhere, somebody, right? Give me a pathway because it's completely overwhelming when you lose control at this level of your daily routines and of all the things we do that give us some sort of anchoring and stability, whether they be healthy or not. You know, if that's what I do and where I go, if I get my coffee and my donut here, if I go to this gym, if I practice in this facility and see my coach at X time, that's what makes me feel secure 
secure. So it really helped me to early on to be thinking about the opportunities that could be presented, at least in some sports. I know soccer players can do certain drills in the driveway. Basketball players can put up shots. Tennis players, you really need a court. And I know some people have been fortunate enough, other people, you know, to have a court or to have a, you know, one nearby of a, of a coach or, you know, but otherwise people are finding walls to hit off of. It's really challenging when you're environmentally dependent. It's true. It's true. Um, as you said, not everybody is, is so fortunate to have access to a court right now. Thankfully, more and more places have, have reopened, but it's still, you know, it still is challenging. Um, I think, you know, during during this time, I, I heard about people being very creative. Maybe they would hit against the wall. Maybe they'd hit against the side of their house. Maybe, you know, just picking up a racket and doing some shadow swings, looking in the mirror. You know, also a chance uh, individuals are telling me that, hey, this is a great chance to really work on the mental game. This is, I, I people telling me they got into a meditation practice for the first time in their life or started really visualizing. I'm glad you said that, uh, Josh, because... I thought one of the real gifts of the quarantine was mindfulness and, and right, the, the opportunity. First, you have to be willing to get to be still. It's hard to do mindfulness or visit visualization if you're not comfortable slowing down. And initially, it was like this immediate permission to just stop. <laughs> There's nowhere you can go. So getting this place of acceptance, because what, what happens to most people when they begin doing meditation, one minute, three minute, 15 minutes, your mind is racing and telling you you need to go somewhere. And if you can, you may. <laughs> But when you can't, and it's more uncomfortable, right? But those feelings of uncomfortability are part of what you need to get through, right? And for a tennis player or basketball player, if it's the end of the game and there's incredible tension, being able to breathe and let go of that negative thought or feeling within, you know, or even muscle tension before you take that free throw. And if you're a tennis player and you're down four games to one to an opponent you think you should be crushing and you're making a ton of unforced errors, that's exactly when you need to be incredibly still within yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you're in that type of situation, you need to recognize what's going on. If you're not aware of why you're down 4-1, how are you going to turn the match around? So a simple, from a coaching perspective, a simple question of, hey, what's what's going on right now? You know, why, you know, not, not so much why is the score the way it is, but a great question is, you know, who's doing what to who right now? Is is one player, is your opponent being really aggressive and you're just not able to, to keep up right now? Are you just hitting yourself off the court by um, trying Trying, you know, trying to hit the ball too hard and you end up making too many errors. But that mindfulness really leads to awareness of self and awareness of your environment. Are you asking yourself those questions almost unconsciously on a point-to-point -point basis? I, ideally, ideally, you want to be aware of, of those types of things. But I, I find that, that tennis players are so caught up in what's going on and sometimes so frustrated, especially if they're losing, that they lose track of, of, why, of why it's happened, frankly. So I think as a coach, reminding them of, okay, I see, I see what's going on here, but why, why do you think that's that? So trying to um, get their perspective perspective and maybe get them to take a step back and look at it, um, you know, from, from an outsider's perspective or you know, to try to see, to tr try to, you know, see, be aware of the whole situation. So not just be aware of them, but maybe be aware of something that the opponents do or, you know, the way the match is, the direction that the match is heading. So I, I do find that the mindfulness has a, a very important role when you can get into the present moment and um, simply notice, notice how you're feeling, notice, hey, hey, maybe I, I'm not performing my best 
because I'm feeling really tight. And I've, you know, ever since I stepped off, stepped off the bus today, I've just been feeling really tight. And I haven't thought to utilize any sort of mental skills to release that tight. I haven't utilized those breathing routines. I haven't stopped myself and maybe just closed my eyes for a second and said, it's okay. You know, I'm in, I'm in a performance setting, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm excited, you know, viewing those sensations in a positive. The, the, helping people recognize the closeness between anxiety and excitement, right? They're on the same continuum. And so the purpose of practicing these performance routines and having worked through them is that they can become, go from conscious to being conscious, or it becomes natural, like, okay, take a breath, right? Repeat one of your self-talk, right? Right? Like, just focus on next point, right? Be more aggressive, right? Little quick self-talk things to help make adjustments. Absolutely. So that it's not like the point of no return, right? The cliff that we talk about, like people just falling off where the anxiety is too high and they know something's wrong and they have, you know, they do not know how to slow it down to be present. Absolutely. And I think if you can catch catch yourself or just notice it, then you can respond where if you don't notice it and then you're just going to react. So I think it's it's that, that difference between, um, you know, slowing yourself down and, and noticing what's going on so that you can sort of choose your response and just simply, you know, reacting or maybe lashing out in anger or frustration um, because of how you're feeling. One question that I have for you is, do you find um, when athletes uh, experiencing anxiety or are um, tight uh, before a performance, do you have any um, any tips or any, any suggestion for how they can help to work through those feelings? Um, do you find that by helping them view it as excitement is helpful or what, what other strategies yeah, great question. I mean, first of all, I think normalizing for everybody, whether you're Michael Jordan or whoever it may be, I mean, it's, you know, the, you know, it's the NBA finals. It's a big game. There's going to be some anxiety there. So normalizing that, they're, they're natural feelings that, uh, so some players like to do, you know, see a lot of players with music, something that gets them into the place of just comfortable warm-up routine, something that keeps it as normal as possible for how you get into that state of readiness, right? We, in some levels, increasing anxiety levels is is natural we don't want to be flat both physically right we need to warm up you want to have a dynamic warm-up you want to feel more alert and ready for what's going on and, and emotionally as well you want to be up for the challenge right how many times have we seen somebody underestimate or come out flat and wind up losing a game they should win so uh, I think the performance routines help because it can help both formulate your attack and your strategy it can also incorporate breathing so helping people with breathing exercises to relieve tension to really consciously you know focus on inhaling and exhaling for like double the amount of the inhale practicing that so that your your tension is kind of left out of the body uh, some of we just started to mention some of those positive self-talk things like you know really quick short positive things that you say to yourself to get yourself mentally game ready maybe you know and if it's a baseball player you may have to have certain things that you say to yourself uh, also right mid pitch things could shift where you're coasting along doing very well to things not going your way a pitch doesn't go your way call a couple of mistakes by your teammates and all of a sudden you're in a different place stress wise so keeping that in your arsenal how are you going to handle stress how can you let go uh, what are some things you kind of do to kind of self-soothe or ground yourself and get back in uh, to your body and your breath uh, and out of the stress so those are some of the things that, that I like to incorporate in my work that, that definitely makes sense I think uh, I think when an athlete you mentioned 
grounding yourself. I think when an athlete can, um, you know, incorporate that that tactile sense and really, uh, I, I find it to helpful actually to, to get athletes sometimes in between points to actually just feel feel the ground beneath your feet. Notice the ground beneath your feet. Well, simple thing, right? That, that you can tell people, right? On any level, whether it be in the therapy office, right? Like what's happening with your toes, right? What's happening with your feet? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And how often do you really notice it on a on a normal basis? So getting getting in touch with with those senses can help to bring you back into that present moment, rather than being lost in thought, wondering, you know, wondering the what ifs about about future. Um, in a you know in a baseball environment, let's say, and the count is three zero. Uh oh, what's what's going to happen if I walk this bet? But instead of thinking like that, or instead of being in the past, or you know, I can't believe I let up that triple, um, you know, the, to the last bet. But being able to brush both of those aside and you know get in touch with those senses and get back into that present moment about what's really happening right now is I, I find to be one of the yeah I mean we had another Boston we had Bob Tewksbury on the show his his uh, book I think it's called ninety percent mental you know great book to read if you want to learn about mental skills in baseball but you know a, a preparation wise that was one of the main strengths right as a pitcher what am I going to do what would I throw in different counts what is he expecting so there's a lot of mental preparation to make sure you're not going to default am i just afraid on the second serve and so i'm gonna just lob one over or do i take a breath reground myself and and deliver my best possible serve right so not tightening up in those situations can be the difference between winning and losing in fact staying aggressive may be what gets you back in and helps you defeat your opponent versus when they're hungry for your <laughs> you know soft second serve <laughs> because you know they know you're when you're behind that's your tendency so learning these things about yourself and learning how to adjust to them is is the real gift of mental skills training and why you know athletes really need to be at this stage right all through the highest level need to be incorporating this if they want to succeed over the long run have you seen a lot of uh, just in closing you know some of the professionals that are that are using mental skills and talking about it yeah yeah it's, it's very interesting I, I have found that over the past few years um, the you know the, the, there's there's always been you know stigma in sports to some extent about psychology but what I what I found is that in, in tennis it really has lessened at really a, a rapid pace. I mean, um, there's there's a player, Daniel Medvedev, who was in the U.S. Open final last year, who has his sports psychologist or sports psychology coach up in his box right next to his coach office. And players, you know, openly talking about ha- how they work with psychologists and how they focus on the mental side of the game. And you know, they, they don't view it as something as as some something that is holding them back. They they view it as, hey, this is something that I'm I'm doing to try to maximize my ability, try to maximize my talent. Um, and I, I think in uh, in other sports, I know in basketball, Kevin Love, um, among others, DeMar DeRozan, they, they've written about, you know, very openly about uh, mental health struggles. So I think across sport, the stigma has definitely lessened and more and more athletes are really speaking out about how important the mental side of the game is, um, how they're working with sports psychology professionals, and how, you know, this this certainly shouldn't be stigmatized in, you know, by focusing on mental uh, mental skills and mental skills training can really get the most out of your performance. Right. Really important. Well, Josh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for making so much of your time available. Please let everyone know how they can reach you and follow up with you to uh, learn more about the inner game. 
from a modern tennis coach. So uh, thank you. So you can go to tiebreakerpsych.com. That's my website or all my social media pages, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram are all at tiebreakerpsych or email me at josh at tiebreakerpsych.com. And uh, thank you, Richard. This has really been really been an honor and really enjoyed it. And just great, great to talk to a fellow professional in the field. Really, really been a pleasure. Yeah, it's exciting. And a shout out certainly to Carrie Cheadle and Sindra Kampoff, you know, uh, paving the way in mental skills. If you haven't read his book, Beyond Grit uh, or Carrie Cheadle, Rebound, uh, must reads for your shelf uh, in terms of working with injured athletes. And it's been a real joy to join a mastermind. If you yourself are looking to grow in your professional development right now, uh, I suggest you joining a mastermind with like-minded individuals push you to get to your next level. Certainly, Josh has pushed me today to uh, get on the spot and get into into my skin and come forward with my knowledge. And that can help you to crystallize what you're doing, what you're trying to bring forward if you're looking to create your side hustle into your main focus. Certainly, uh, this podcast has been a gift. The quarantine, we've done more than since the quarantine since we did in the pre- previous four years. So if you are, uh, know someone or you yourself uh, work with athletes or performance and would like to share uh, your journey, um, please reach out to us and, and we'd love to feature you on the show. We'll be bringing forward to you later this month a panel for retired athletes, a separate podcast called Making the Jump. So uh, keep your eyes out for that. Josh Berger, thank you so much for your time. We're grateful and look forward to connecting down the road. Thanks, Richard. Well, that was a real treat, everybody. Thank you to Josh Berger, who's made so much of his time. Uh, this week to support, promote the show, and doing work with tennis athletes, uh, both at the Division One Sacred Heart level and also through Tiebreaker Psych. Check him out on Instagram, and he's a wonderful resource and a kind, caring soul if you are looking for someone to work with your tennis player on the way up. I'm Richard Olberger, clinical psychologist. Please reach out to me if you are looking for clinical or performance-based work through this quarantine and beyond. If your relationship has been stressed, if your identity and your role, work or performance life has been addressed, or if this has brought up things from a long time ago based on all the time we've had to settle in and focus and the other stressors facing us as individuals and as a country, uh, this can bring up a lot of questions about race, identity, political vision, and emotional state of how well we live in our relationship to self-care. Again, check me out on Instagram, Richard Listens, or patreon.com slash Richard Listens to please, please, please support the show. Give what you can, a dollar here, a dollar there. It will build. We've been putting the energy in, and I know you can give something to keep it going. Um, this is the way that we give you behind-the-scenes looks and advanced content. So we try and reward those who value us. Take care, everybody. I'm Richard Listens, and I'm out. I'm a big fan of MMA sports. It's rough and elegant at the same time. I think my number one fear of stepping into a ring like that would be protecting my teeth. Luckily, the guys over at Impact Dental Designs have created an amazing mouth guard that is state of the art. These mouth guards are currently being used by some of the best MMA fighters, but even better, they can be tailored to any sport. Football, hockey, boxing, soccer, the list is endless. Head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash richardlistens to get 20% off your order and a free customized design for your mouth guard. Lastly, I'd like to proudly mention our sponsor, Injitsu.com, providing remote at-home training from some of the world's top MMA fighters. These classes are not pre-recorded. These trainers come to you live and coach you for the duration of the session. 
I've personally taken a few of these classes and I've never felt so inspired and accomplished in a workout session. They'll leave you both on the floor in exhaustion and with a drenched shirt. There are still slots available for online classes, so head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. Take care, everyone.